Hello, folks. I'm so glad that you chose to listen today. This is the On Being Christian podcast. We're closing in on podcast number 20. I think this might be 19 or something close to it. And here in Salt Lake City, Utah, it is still snowing. Has been for a while now. Uh, and usually at this point in the in the year, we're pretty used to it not snowing anymore down here in the valley, though the mountains might get a little bit more. But it is still snowing down here. And uh, my children, they try to help out the neighbors as much as they can with respect to shoveling. And our direct neighbor still works at a bakery, and she still pays my children in donuts. And so my children are pretty happy for this snow. Uh, if, if nobody else is, they certainly are. Uh, anyway, this is the On Being Christian podcast. My name is Nolan Ruby, and I'll be your host. I'm also the pastor of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church here in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the On Being Christian podcast is a ministry of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church. And spring is one of my favorite times of year. I do enjoy the prospect of being able to get outside, get into the yard, and do all the things uh, that, that, that I love doing, which is mostly outside. Um, you get to open the windows and get that winter air out of the house. But also, as you look at spring, one of the things that we are getting ready to celebrate here at Wasatch Front Baptist Church is the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're talking about Easter today. And under or with that understanding, I'd like to give you this title, um, which is simply put, He Is Not Here, which is a reference that we're going to show you, which comes directly out of the Word of God. He is not here. Talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is not in the tomb. I do not serve a dead God. I serve a very much alive God. A God that is, as the Bible says, gone to prepare a place for me. And you, if you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's exactly what he's doing, even as we speak. But with respect to today, I just want to show you from the Bible a couple things. We're going to look at the scheme to hold Jesus Christ in the grave after he was murdered. And then we're going to kind of take a step back and look at the 48 hours that led up to that. 48 hours prior to his crucifixion. And then I'd like to kind of change focus and look at the power that raised him from the dead. And then we'll end by looking at the attempt or the, uh, the lie that was the attempt to cover all of this up, even to this day. And so if we go to Matthew chapter 27, the context of what we're going to read starts in verse 57 and it goes down through verse 66, which is the end of the chapter. The Bible says, when the even was come, there was, excuse me, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus's disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own tomb, or excuse me, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary sitting over against the wall. Now just very quickly for context, the other Mary is the wife of Alphaeus, which is uh, James's father, James the Lesser's father. You see, Salome is also there in other scripture, 
and other parts of the gospel. She's not at the tomb. She's at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then Mary and the other Mary, or Mary the mother of James the lesser, is at the grave. All right. Now, verse 62 says, Now the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can, which I find a very interesting phrase. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So this section of scripture gives us the context of what we're going to be talking about. This is the burial of Jesus Christ. Now we see the crucifixion take place. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. We'll look at the 48 hours leading up to the burial of Jesus Christ. But the specific part of what we're talking about today is this burial and the fact that it didn't work like they thought that it would. All right. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that Joseph here, this isn't um, Jesus's father. This is one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. His name's Joseph, and he's referred to as a, a rather wealthy man. You see that he makes a very great sacrifice here. In verse 58, he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. So Joseph has the body, and this is when they took Jesus Christ down from off the cross. And verse 59 tells us that Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door and the sep- uh, of the sepulcher, made a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. And then Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's James's mother, was sitting over against the sepulcher. They watched this happen. Okay, now it's not a cheap thing that Joseph just did. Uh, most of the time in this time frame, there were places along the cliffs and and outer regions of Jerusalem and Rome where there were porous types of places uh, where people were were buried. There were natural porous um, enclaves within the rock, and they would use those as tombs. This is different. This is not natural. The Bible says it's hewed, which means it's made. So This man had to buy this specific plot of land and then have this tomb hewed or created, handmade. Uh, And most likely he was doing that as a a place for not just him but for his family, uh, a, a family tomb, all right? And he gave it away. He gave it to the cause of burying Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things I want you to remember before we get too far into this is that when we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we often talk about it just like that, like it is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is the gospel. But I want you to remember, the people who were going through this did not have the perspective that you and I have. The people that were going through this 
we're very much living in the finality of what was perceived to be the death of Christ. Now the prophets and Jesus Christ himself said that he would rise again, but that's something that hadn't happened yet. And so these people were very much living in a world where Jesus Christ had been murdered. There is an overwhelming, in other words, feeling of finality to what is happening here. For all who are there, living this in real time, Jesus Christ is dead. That's something that you and I, we don't really think about that because we know he rose again. But for three days on this earth, there was a huge question mark in the minds of people who devoted their entire lives, their souls, to being followers of Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ died. The finality of that, the weight of that, must have been absolutely crushing, especially if you understood uh, and remembered all the things that Jesus Christ had said. So Joseph gives his tomb for the purpose of burying Jesus Christ, uh, you see Mary Magdalene, that's the sister of Lazarus, um, uh, who Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the sister of Martha. And then the other Mary, that's the, the wife of Alphaeus, which is James's father, James the Lesser. They're there at the tomb. Uh, Mary and Mary Magdalene and Salome are at the crucifixion, but it's these two Marys that are at the tomb. All right, and Joseph gives his tomb to the cause of burying Jesus Christ, and Pilate makes this reference about the tomb. He says, go and make it as sure as you can. Now, that's an interesting word. The word sure there is to render secure, to make fast, and I find it interesting that he said, you do the best you can, almost like he was a little bit anticipate anticipating that this man might not be just a normal, natural man. In fact, you kind of get that idea when he washed his hands of the death of Jesus Christ publicly and said, I have nothing to do with the death of this just man. I'm paraphrasing. But what I want you to notice here as we get involved in this is that the Pharisees, they hated Jesus Christ so much. The Pharisees were a separatist, exclusively religious sect. Now, the other thing before I want to get too far into this is I want you to understand that if you are an American, you your context of religion has and always will be, until it changes, separate from state. Okay, Separation of church and state. But that's not necessarily common. The more common thing is that religion tends to become an arm of the state, which was one of the things that our forefathers, in their uh, wisdom and, and providential leading, set up in our Declaration of Inst in Independence and in the subsequent Constitution of the United States, was that these two things, uh, one should not be dependent on the other. The, the state should have no say in the conscience of the human mind, the religious conscience. And so... But that's not exactly what's going on here. The religion was very much an, an extinguished or an extinction of the arm of the state. And so you have the Pharisees, who were uh, political, religious figures of the Jews, 
going to Pilate, who was the governor under the headship of Rome of the region, and asking him for permission to set a guard over a dead body in a tomb, which is just so interesting to me because it shows that they hated Jesus Christ so much that even after he was murdered, they pursued the desecration of him even into the grave. Now, it's interesting the way they worded it. It picks it up in verse 62. It says, Now the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver, talking about Jesus Christ, they're calling him a deceiver, while he was yet alive after three days, while he was yet alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure under the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Now, the thing that I find very interesting about that, if we start on the last part of that verse, is the Pharisees are saying the error that his disciples would make of stealing his body and claiming that he rose from the dead would be a worse error than the first. But it doesn't really say what the first error was. And so you're left understanding that their definition of his, talking about Jesus Christ here, their definition of his entire life was boiled down to one word, error. And the fact that he might have his body stolen by the people who were, quote-unquote, deceived by the deceiver would create more problems than even his life created. Well, I, I would have to agree with them that his resurrection from the dead did create some pretty significant problems for man's idea of religion. So they were right on that, uh, though I would say that they were that they that they are right for a different reason than what they would say, but I do agree with them that his resurrection created significant problems for them, and uh, and still does. And so you have these Pharisees pursuing Jesus Christ even past his death. His body has been wrapped in linen. He's been put into a new hand-hewn grave or a tomb, and a great stone has been rolled over the access point or the door of that tomb, and a Roman centurion, a Roman guard, has been set to watch over the tomb so that, according to the Pharisees, the deceived disciples could not come and steal the body of Jesus Christ and then tell the world through a lie that he rose from the dead. So that's kind of the picture of what starts this. Now remember, we're talking about the fact that he's not here. He's not in the tomb. And I want you to remember the context here. If you can get rid of the, not get rid of, but you understand the people who are living through this are very much defeated by what's happened. For all intents and purposes, for this time frame, Jesus Christ is dead. His body is in a tomb. And everyone that followed him and listened to him, the last 33 and a half years of human history is all in question in the human mind right now. And that's kind of what sets the table for our second point, which is the power that raised him. And so we have the scheme 
to hold him. That's our first point. We're going to kill him. We're going to put him in a tomb. We're going to put a stone over that tomb. We're going to seal it. We're going to make it as sure as we can. We're going to guard it. And if he does raise from the dead, we've got a lie set up that will explain it. So that's the scheme that's been put into place. Now, before we get into the power that raised him, let's go backwards just for a bit of an interlude here. And let's look at the 48 hours prior to this. Now, for time's sake, we're not going to read all of this, obviously, but I'm going to read you the references and then tell you kind of what's going on, which leads up to where we are now. This starts in John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 26, 14 through 16. You see that Judas agrees to betray the Son of God. And then in chapter Matthew chapter 26, 17 through 30, the Passover meal is recorded. This is the instance and in, or the, the event in which Jesus Christ transferred the observance of the Old Testament Passover to the observance of the Last Supper, which was commanded to be um, observed in exact accordance of the Passover, but instead of the Jewish people observing it, those who have accepted Christ and were righteous by faith, not by customs, were now being told to observe this. Okay, so you have the Passover meal that takes place, Matthew 26, 17 through 30, and that's where Jesus Christ transitioned it. In fact, he said later on, he said, I am the Passover. In other words, he is the 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 actuality of what the Passover observation was um, prophesying about. All right. And then in chapter 26 of Matthew 31 through 35, you find Peter's vow of loyalty. He says, I'll go with you even to death. And then 36 through 40, you find Jesus's prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. That's when he goes in. He prays three times to the Lord that this cup, talking about the cup of sin, that it might pass from him. But he ends it by saying, not my will, but thine be done. And then in Matthew 26, 47 through 56, you see the betrayal and arrest of Jesus Christ. Okay, one of the things I find interesting about that is when Judas showed up to point out who Jesus Christ was, they asked him what his name was, and he said, I am he. In other words, he said, I am Jesus Christ. And the very, just the, just the explanation, just the statement from Christ about who he was The Bible records the fact that the people, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and all the people that came out to arrest him were were floored. They, they, They were knocked down by the power of Jesus Christ simply saying who he was. Now, folks, I was in the Marine Corps, and I've been a man under orders. I've got to tell you, if I was sent out to arrest a man who could knock me over, by introducing himself to me, I would really have second thoughts about the next steps that I would take. And then in Matthew chapter 26, 57 through 68, uh, Jesus comes before uh, Caiaphas, the, the first mock trial, and then the beatings begin. So almost immediately after he was arrested, there was a system of mock trials that he had to work his way through. And the, the first one, Caiaphas, he, he ends up uh, in this mock trial. And, um, and then the beatings began immediately after that. And then in chapter 26, 69 through 75, you find Peter's denial of Jesus. Now in 31 through 35, Peter vowed loyalty. 
But in 69 through 75, we, we see that that loyalty, that vow of loyalty didn't last. He, he immediately um, rejected Christ and, and, and denied him. And then if we jump forward a chapter, Matthew chapter 27, the first 10 verses, we find the remorse and subsequent death of Judas. And then in Matthew 27, 11 through 26, we find Jesus comes before Pilate. This is the second mock Roman trial. There were several mock Jewish trials before that. And as a result of this trial, they release Barabbas and, and scourge or um, brutally whip Jesus. And then in Matthew 27, 27 through 31, Jesus is mocked and beaten by the soldiers. He's now entirely in the custody of the Roman soldiers, and he's being mocked and beaten and tortured and made fun of. And then in Matthew 27, 32 through 44, you find the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In fact, in all four of the Gospels, even though there's a lot of definition to what happens before the crucifixion and what happens after crucifixion, all four of the, the disciples who recorded the crucifixion don't record a lot of um, specifics about it. In fact, they all say the exact same thing. There he was crucified, or there they crucified him. The picture being that the crucifixion was such a dishonorable, such a horrid murder, that they didn't even feel the liberty to write about it. And so in 32 through 44, Matthew 27, 32 through 44, you find the crucifixion of Jesus. And then in Matthew 27, 45 through 50, you find Jesus' death on the cross recorded. He gives up the ghost and he dies. So that's the 48 hours prior to when Joseph, Joseph the, the uh, rich man who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, requested permission from Pilate to have the body of Jesus Christ delivered, wrapped it in clean linen, put it in an unused new hand-hewn tomb, and uh, the Pharisees convinced Pilate to set a guard over that tomb, to roll a, a stone over the access point or the door of that tomb, and to seal it. And that's where our story picks up with point number two, the power that raised him. So now let's look at what the Bible says concerning the power that raised Jesus Christ. It picks up in chapter 28 of Matthew, and we'll read the first 10 verses. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Now, <laughs> that's so interesting to me. That, like, the Bible didn't have to record that that's what happened. But it did. And so when the Bible records things that don't necessarily seem pertinent to the story that I'm reading, I always stop and just take a second look at that. So you have an angel roll back the stone, and then just sit on it. That is one of the most ultimate forms of defiance. It's like when you were kids and you subdued, me and my brother used to fight and wrestle and play, and when you beat him, when you beat him, he gave in, he tapped, he quit. 
and you would stand over him and put your foot on him. That's the idea that I get here, is he rolls the stone away and then almost comically sits on it. He just sits on it and waits, the angel of the Lord. Verse 3 says, His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. So the guard that was set there to make the sepulcher as sure as they could, yeah, they're not doing a very good job. In fact, they fainted. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. And here's the title of the entire podcast and the part that brings me so much satisfaction and encouragement. Verse 6, He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples and he that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth forth you, excuse me, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall ye see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet, and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. So this is such a wonderful part of the story. In verse 2, Matthew 28, verse 2, the stone is rolled away. It says they rolled back the stone. And then just for, just for giggles, the angel of the Lord whose countenance is like lightning sits on the stone. Just sits on it. <laughs> it's just like a, an ultimate form of dominance. Just sits on the stone and waits for these two women to come up. Lightning here is a word. Um, it's taken from the Strong's Greek Concordance reference number 796. It, by analogy, the word means glare. And so there was such, it was an unnatural light. It was a heavy glare that this angel was putting off. Verse 4, the keepers became as dead men. Verse 6, you see the phrase which holds the title of this podcast, He is not here, for he is risen. Folks, I do not serve a dead God. My God is not on the cross. These pictures and depictions of religious symbols that have Jesus Christ naked and ashamed bleeding and dying on the cross. He's not on the cross anymore, and he's not in the grave. He's risen. He's alive. He's healed, and he wants to heal you. Get rid of these ridiculous religious symbols that worship dead gods. My God is alive, and he will be forevermore. We see a couple things in reference to this. Verse 6, he is not here. If you go to Mark 16, 6, the Bible says the same thing. He is risen. He is not here. In Luke 24, 5 through 6, you'll see the Bible says this. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. That's a good question. Why seek ye the living among the dead? That's what the angel said to these two women. He's not here. Why would the living be among the dead? 
of course, the idea is that Jesus Christ is now among the living. And so you see these two women, they run to do what they were told, to tell the disciples that Jesus Christ is risen. If you go to John chapter 20, there's, there's more that we can see in this story. John chapter 20, if we start in verse 11 and read down through verse 17, the Bible says, um, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping, and as she wept, she stopped down and looked into the, excuse me, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, because at this point the stone was rolled away, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now that's interesting. Jesus is there. He's not in the tomb, but he's there. He's outside. And she's looking at him. And there was something going on in her where she's like looking at Jesus but doesn't know who he is. Jesus said to her, Woman, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She supposing him to be the gardener. <laughs> that was almost what I titled this podcast. She supposed him to be the gardener. Well, she, she was wrong. He wasn't the gardener. She was standing face to face with the risen, very much alive, Jesus Christ the Son of God. She supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne his borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my father, <clears throat> but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now, you know what I find very encouraging about that? The way he phrased it. Sin has now been paid for. Sin has been defeated. Jesus Christ defeated it. And he goes and he says, up to this point, it was my father, my father, my father. And now he says, my father and your father, my God and your God. What's he saying? Folks, it's through the blood and sacrificial atonement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that the God of heaven can be your God, that the father of Jesus Christ can be your father. Praise the Lord. Verse, 19, verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples and that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. And it goes on from there. Very, very, very interesting. He's raised from the dead. He tells her to go and tell the disciples. She goes and tells them what she saw and what he said. And the fact that he has said that the Father, his Father is now our Father, 
that the God, his God, is, is now our God, and that's all made possible by the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave with his sacrificial death on the cross. He's not in the grave. He's not on the cross. He's risen from the dead, and he's on earth again. And things are about to get very interesting. There's a picture here that develops, and for time's sake, I don't want to go and read all of these references to you, but I do want to give you the reference. Romans 10.9 tells us that exactly the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 10.9 says, God hath raised him from the dead. Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, God hath both raised up the Lord. Ephesians 1.20 says, he raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 4.14 says, He which raised up the Lord Jesus. Galatians 1.1 says, God the Father, goes on to say, raised him, talking about Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, God that raised him from the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, He raised him from the dead. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, God... And then it says, brought again from the dead, talking about Jesus Christ. And you find this all throughout the book of Romans. Romans 8, 11, 4, 24, 6, 4, 8, 34, all throughout the book of Acts. Acts 2, 24, 3, 15, 4, 10, 5, 30, 10, 40, 13, 30, and 34, over and over and over and over again, folks. And I'm sorry for all those rapid references, but the Bible makes it very clear. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead was none other than God the Father. And because of what Jesus Christ did, the God the Father of Jesus Christ is now our God and can be our Father. Let me make that personal. The God of heaven, through his grace and the sacrifice of his Son, Jesus Christ, can be your God. The Father of Jesus Christ can be your Father. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear on exactly who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no power greater than the power of God. God is all-powerful. Thus, if there was or could be one of more power, then that would actually be God. There is no greater power than God. That is where all power comes from, and there is no power in exceedance of it. Now, I want to show you a couple things here concerning power. Where God is permanent, man is temporary. Where God is temporary, man is permanent. Where God gains and keeps, man takes and loses. Where God is uncorruptible, man is corruptible. Where God is strong, man is weak. Where God is love, man is hate. God is light, man is dark. Where God has the victory, man is defeated. Uh, where God is victorious, we are, again, defeated. Where God is able, man is unable. Where, where everything is possible with God, uh, nothing is possible without him. Where God is life, man is death. And so this is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, God the Father, is the exact opposite of man. The exact opposite. And so, so far, what we have seen is that there was a scheme to hold Jesus Christ. It was nothing more than stones and guards and sealed rock. 
It didn't work. They anticipated it not working, so they set up a lie in advance of him doing what he said he would do, which was raised from the dead that would attempt to explain it. But nevertheless, it didn't work. And then we have the power that raised him. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is nothing more and nothing less than the only power that all power comes from. That's the power of God. And so let's look at the third thing in closing, the lie attempting to cover it all up. If we go back to our text in Matthew chapter 28, this is where we kind of connect the first and the third point. This lie that was put forth to try to cover up everything that was going to happen, we find it picks up in verse 11, and we'll read down through verse 15. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. And if this come to the governor's ear, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Now, this is incredibly interesting. This is the lie that is, to this day, attempting to cover up the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? This is, uh, there, there's, this is, I just pulled this from wikipedia.org. I know that's not a reliable source by any means, but I want you to read this. There is no specific doctrinal view of Jesus in traditional Judaism. Monotheism is central to Judaism. Thus, Judaism regards the worship of a person as idolatry. The rejection of Jesus as Messiah has never been a theological issue for Judaism because Jewish eschatology holds that the coming of the Messiah will be associated with events that had not occurred at the time of Jesus. So that's the official kind of position here, except it has been a theological issue as the whole quote-unquote system of faith is built off of the lie told bought and paid for by the elders of the priest um, on the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pretending something never took place does not make it to where it never took place. Jesus foretold the Old Testament with his life, death, burial, and resurrection, making the way possible for the New Testament. To ignore this is to do so willingly And willing ignorance is the exact same thing as disobedience. And so you have this soldier, the two soldiers that were set to make the sepulcher as sure as they can, run and tell the chief priest all that was done. So just to recap, they run and tell the chief priest, listen, an angel that looked like lightning came down, we were scared, fainted, passed out, he rolled the stone away, sat on it, and Jesus Christ left. Now, if you were the Pharisees at that exact moment, can you imagine what you'd be thinking? Because it doesn't say that they didn't believe him. In other words, they said, okay, this is a problem. They didn't say, oh, you're lying. This couldn't have possibly happened. They didn't send out search teams to go and look for the disciples who stole the body of Jesus Christ because they very well knew 
that the disciples didn't steal the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and their entire world got turned upside down because of it. So what'd they do? Two things that usually all people who reject authority do, spend money to cover it up and lie about what they did. Folks, this is as old as time. Money and lies. Welcome to United States political apparatus. I'm sorry. Getting political. Everything's political now. Money and lies. It's as old as time, folks. What did they do? They said, here's what you're going to do. Verse, uh, let's see here. Uh, Verse 12. They all get together. Side note. Isn't it interesting how none of these cowards can make a decision on their own? They all have to get into a room and all get together and form an opinion because they're too cowardly to form their own opinion and stand on their own morals. They have to have someone with just as many alphabetical connotations to their name as they do get behind them and, and tell them they're right. As a side note, folks, when your opinion, when you find your opinion, on the side of the majority, you might want to think about the value of your opinion. Okay? That's a different question. Verse 12, And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept, and and if this come to the governor's ear, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money, the soldiers took the money, and did what they were told to do. And this saying, the fact that the disciples came and stole his body, this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. So to this very day, this lie is still being perpetuated. By the way, do you know how a lie exists? There's only one way for a lie to exist, and that's on the tongue of a liar. Truth exists whether it's recounted or not. You can't change the truth. You can't alter the truth. The truth is just the truth. You can lie about the truth, But as soon as you stop lying, the lie dies and the truth prevails. And there is a day coming, folks, when this lie will die. It will die. It's going to be really hard to perpetuate the lie that over 2,000 years ago, disciples stole the body of Jesus Christ and hid it when heaven splits wide open and Jesus Christ comes back. It's going to be really hard to say that it was all a lie. But that day is coming, and until then, this is the decision that humanity makes. Do we believe in the power of God who raised up his son from the grave and from hell and from death? Or do we believe the lies that a bunch of religious people paid a soldier to tell? And it really comes down to just that. Folks, Jesus Christ is not here. He is risen from the grave. He has ascended into heaven, and he will come back. That's what Easter's all about. That's what the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. It's not about bunnies. It's not about whatever other nonsensical, stupid nonsense that we've put into it. It's about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we go to 2 Peter chapter 3, I'll end with this. 2 Peter chapter 3, 3 through 7, the Bible says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant." 
they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, and it goes on. This they willingly are ignorant. Folks, the worst type of ignorance in the world is willing ignorance, because willing ignorance is the exact same thing as disobedience. The disciples did not steal the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did raise from the dead by the power of God. An angel did roll the stone away and sit on it. And Jesus Christ did walk this earth after he died, before he ascended to heaven. This is all true. It all happened. And that's what Easter's about. Have you ever gotten to the point, folks, where your relationship with Jesus Christ is more than a religious thing? It's more than just a secular, cultural, mommy and daddy taught me how to do this thing. It's real. It's a real relationship with a real God because of a real sacrifice by Jesus Christ. Is the Father of Jesus Christ your Father? Is the God of heaven, is the God of Jesus Christ your God? Or are we just going through the motions? Folks, I love you. I hope you have a wonderful Easter. This is one of, a, one of the great times of the year to just pause if for no other reason than just still contemplation and reflection about what Jesus Christ did for my soul. I know exactly who I am. I know exactly where I'd be if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. Just a little bit about my background. My family, I've got part of my family from the Midwest, from Iowa. That's my dad's side. Successful people, smart people, driven people good people, if you want to use that term. And then the other part of my family is from Pascagoula, Mississippi. It's my mom's side. Uh, and it's love them very much, but it's basically the opposite of everything I just said. Rough, rough runners. And um, I, I, I miss, they're all, all of my mother's t- family, to include my mother, has passed, except for one guy. And uh, I miss them. I miss them. I'm, I'm from I'm from that type of dichotomy. I knew how to behave and ask for permission to be excused from the table when I was at my dad's side of the house. And I knew how to turn it up and get pretty rowdy when I was at my when I was with my mother's side of the family. I was a Marine. I fought in lots of different places all over the world. I was a rowdy guy. And Jesus Christ saved my soul. And I have a relationship with the God of heaven because of this day right here, the day that Jesus Christ came up out of the grave by the power of God. Have you ever accepted, have you ever accepted this for yourself? Not a religion, not a process, not, not, I'm not talking about baptism and all that stuff. I'm talking about the only thing that can take place between you and God, and that's acceptance of Jesus Christ. Have you ever done that? I pray that you have. I pray that you will. Easter is all about remembering and contemplating and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much for the time you've given. I pray that you'd let these things sink into our hearts and minds, that we'd take them with us and that they'd settle into us as we contemplate your resurrection. Thank you, Father, for living and for dying and for raising again. I pray that you would help us to walk worthy of the things that you've given. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for listening. This is the On Being Christian Podcast, which is a ministry of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church. That's W-A-S-A-T-C-H Front Baptist Church. And if you want to find out more about us, wasatchfrontbaptistchurch.com. You can link a hold of me directly from that website, or you can get all of these podcasts directly from that website as well. My name is Nolan Ruby. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to spend more time with you. We'll talk to you soon. God bless. Have a wonderful spring. Talk to you later.